to just uh, put in the chat that uh, that the recording will not be available. After all, she she made a mistake. <clears throat> but I'm letting you know that I'm recording it for Everyday Zen, so it'll be on the Everyday Zen website. If you go to everydayzen.org and uh, plug in the topic and the date and the spirit rock, uh, you'll find it easily, I think. <clears throat> It'll probably take a couple days before it's up online. So I want to talk uh, about continuous practice, something I've been thinking about a lot. Seems really important right now. Uh, the thought that, that life is spiritual practice, and spiritual practice is life, not some special thing. And even more than that, that awakening or enlightenment, the radical transformation of life that the Buddha promises, is also practice. Not some unattainable goal, but practice itself. And this is a very, very simple and straightforward idea. But uh, we seem to be uh, constructed in such a way that we cannot believe this simple idea. We are so convinced <clears throat> that there's something wrong, that there's something that we lack, that we keep making life <clears throat> more and more complicated. So we're struggling. But there's no really good reason <clears throat> for our struggles. So continuous practice means not that we have to do something, but the opposite, that we have to undo something. <clears throat> not that we have to add something, but that we have to let go of something, our struggles. But we are really attached to our struggles. And the whole point of view, all the assumptions that we don't even know we make, that create those struggles. We are really convinced and attached to all that so that uh, we do have to make a serious effort in order to practice. But the point is, this does not have to be a grim and difficult slog. Right from the beginning, uh, practice can be a joy. From the beginning all the way to the end. So this idea of continuous practice comes from an essay of Dogen. Probably everybody here has heard about Dogen. <clears throat> He's a 13th century uh, Japanese Zen master, considered by many people to be uh, the most important sage in all of Japanese Buddhism. Through various quirks of history, he's become an important uh, thinker, religious thinker, for our time. And so I'm going <clears> to <throat> read and comment just on the very beginning of his essay called Continuous Practice. Here's how it starts. On the great road of Buddha ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It rolls round and round as a circle of the way. It never ends. Between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana, there is no gap. Continuous practice rolls on and on. It is the circle of the way. So here we have two great phrases that we could keep in mind for the rest of our lives. The great road of the Buddha ancestors and the circle of the way. A great road 
goes forth. It stretches on into the horizon. Just being human is a great journey on a great road. Your life is really important and very poignant and is no doubt more than you ever imagined. A circle goes round and round. This means there's no destination. There's just the going through many seasons, many weathers, many colors, round and round, always going away from where you began and always coming back to where you began. That's what a circle is. Leaving home. Journeying home. Sorry about that. So Dogen is saying that the great road of practice is a Dharma wheel that's turning and turning. Now, this is actually a profound teaching about time. Dogen writes about this in other places more explicitly, but here it's assumed. Time is not, as we think it is, uh, linear. It doesn't go from here to there. It goes from here to here, there to there, it stands still, it goes up, it goes down. All moments, every moment includes all moments. And that's why Dogen says that the whole archetypal career of a Buddha which classically begins with the moment of aspiring to awakening and leaving home, then a period of diligent practice, lots of difficult practice, and then finally a moment of awakening, and then teaching and complete nirvana in the end, that linear archetypal career of the Buddha is actually time itself, one eternal moment of time, which is always now and always the moment in which we are living. <clears throat> There's no gap in time. All these moments are the true profound shape of every moment and that's the circle of the way that rolls on and on through space and time. So that means that the very beginning of our practice already includes the end. That the effort that we make at any point on our path includes the whole of the path. So that when we're worried about whether or not we're making progress and how much progress are we making and whether we're we doing it right or doing it wrong or whether somebody else is further along than we are and how come we didn't start earlier now we've lost so much time we don't have enough time to do this like the other people who started younger when we have all those thoughts you know that we normally have we need to remember that this is just a phony projection of our confused mind it has nothing to do with practice. In fact, whenever it is we think we began so-called Buddhist practice, or whatever our spiritual practice is, we never began. We've always been doing it. It started before we began, <clears throat> and it goes on in us even after we're gone. It never cuts off. It never ends. It could not possibly end if we really understand time in life. Okay, so I don't know how all that sounds to you. Uh, it might sound a little crazy. Uh, or it might sound, those of you who are 
you know, familiar with spiritual practice, you might think, well, this just sounds like the typical religious nonsense. I don't know how it sounds to you, or, or maybe when you hear it, you, you are inspired by it and you think it means something. Because I think that we all know, you know, if we ever get quiet, if we ever have a moment when the trivialities fall away, I think we all know somehow that there's more to life than meets the eye. I think we all know that being alive is much bigger and fuller than we habitually think it is. We have a very small view, ordinarily, and we come by it honestly. We learned it from our families. We learned it from the people all around us. And every single day, the entire world is working overtime to reinforce this small view in us. If we look at spiritual practice uh, in a small way, you know that it's for calming us down, making us more attentive, having better emotions, you know, all of that. If that's what we think we're doing, we're missing it. We're missing how immense it is and how mysterious it is, this being alive. It is astounding to be you. A never before seen or heard phenomenon in the universe. To really know we're alive. And to really know all that this means for us. That's what it means to be an awakened Buddha. And when we practice even if our practice isn't too good. We feel this. Around the edges, in the corners, in the silence, in the darkness, we feel it. Dogen goes on. These are his words. This being so, continuous practice is undivided, not forced by you or by others. The power of this continuous practice confir confirms you as well as others. It means your practice affects the entire earth and the entire sky in the ten directions. Although it may not be noticed by others or by yourself, it is so. This word uh, translated here as undivided is a word that Dogen often uses. It's one of his favorite words. And it means, what it sounds like it means, it means whole, all-inclusive, no inside or outside, no boundary. It's hard to grasp this thought, actually, because as soon as we say this something is whole or undivided, if it's something, it's automatically divided from all the things that it is not, right? In this sense, all things, just by being the things that they are, are divided. And that means that undividedness is the opposite of consciousness. Because consciousness is dividedness. Consciousness is discrimination. That's what consciousness is. And there's a wonderful saying of Suzuki Roshi, which is really, to me, quite astonishing. He says, what exists beyond consciousness actually exists. Implying that what exists in consciousness doesn't actually exist. What exists what beyond consciousness actually exists, and it is there we have to establish the foundations of our practice. Now that is an astonishing thought. What exists beyond consciousness actually exists, and it is there 
we have to establish the foundations of our practice. What do we make of that? Well, it is quite astonishing. It means we have to establish on practice our practice on what is beyond consciousness. We have to have a foundation for our lives in what is beyond consciousness, beyond discrimination, and that means beyond perception, beyond thought, beyond feeling. Because that's what really actually exists. Everything else exists too, but provisionally, <clears throat> not actually. And yet, of course, this provisional existence, this world of coming and going, this world of me and you and comparison and contention, that's the world we live in. We can't pretend otherwise. So we're not going to live in another world. But the question is, how do we live in that world? Do we live in it only divided? Only seeking and grasping for something we're never going to find? And therefore we will live and die unsatisfied? Or do we live in it knowing that the true world, the world of practice, is undivided and therefore fundamentally beyond this kind of suffering? Maybe you could think of it as playing a game. If you're going to play the game, the game has rules. No game without rules. You know, nine players, three outs, three strikes, four balls. You know, you can't say, no, there's going to be six balls and nine strikes. No, this, the game has rules. So you have to play the game according to the rules. And yes, you will win or you will lose. Right. But when you really understand the game, when you really have a feeling of its nature and its purpose, you will play the game with a lot more heart and a lot less grief. And maybe when you practice the game like that, you will be able to help others who are so wrapped up in the game that they have absolutely no perspective. Continuous practice roots our lives in something beyond division and suffering. That's why we have to do it. So, human beings are very smart and very good at playing the game and very good at discrimination. The smarter we are, the more acutely we can discriminate. That's what it means to be very, very smart, to have a tremendous capacity for acute discrimination, to have critical mind, we see this is different from that, which means we can see how things fall short, how they could be made better, and we can see how we ourselves fall short, how we ourselves could be better. We see how other people could be better, institutions, ideas, machines. Because of our discriminating mind, we can see how all these things can be better and we can make them better, and that's good. It's good to be better people with better ideas and better machines. But discrimination also makes a world of suffering when we are unable to see beyond it. When we see the world of consciousness but don't appreciate the world beyond consciousness, we will suffer a lot and we will have no relief in our machines, good as they are can't help us. When Dogen says that continuous practice is not forced by you or others, he's saying that when you think you decide to practice and make effort in practice, or when others do this, this is not exactly what's really going on. There's no forcing practice, there's no grunting and groaning, and there's no coercion. Practice just flows and unfolds beyond what we think we're doing. Yes, of course, we make effort, we show up, we, we do the practice. We study the teachings, we practice meditation and many other practices, we're diligent. But what's happening is something 
beyond us. And I really feel this, you know, to me this is very personal. People sometimes ask me, you know, tell me the story about how you got interested in Buddhism and what happened and how you did this and that. And I, I have a story, you know, that I tell them and, uh, and, and in a way it's a true story, but not really. It's just a conventional story. It's a provisional story. The true story, and I know this from the bottom of my heart, the true story is that practice was always in me. And practice itself made use of my various thoughts and attitudes and desires and conditioning, and especially various chance circumstances, to guide me into what I needed to do from the very beginning. From the outside, it might have looked like I made choices and efforts, but not really. It all just happened. And then, <laughs> really, this is how I experience it. Kaboom! You know, <laughs> I blinked my eyes twice, and here I am, you know, wearing Buddha's robe, and sitting in Buddha's seat and talking to you. And I've always been doing this. Always. It's always been just rolling along in this way. And the same is true for you. So when Dogen says that practice confirms me and it confirms you, I, I really feel that. Practice is the seal that sanctifies my life and your life. It is the magic sauce that makes us whole. Whatever happens, good or bad, and, and we know that good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen. Whatever happens, we know that we are children of Buddha, doing the Buddha's practice, destined ourselves to be Buddhas, and that means we're Buddhas now, whether we appreciate it or not. And we know that whenever we see it otherwise, as we so often will and do, no matter how compelling that vision may be reinforced by everything around us, at some point we understand it cannot be correct. It cannot possibly be correct. Our ordinary lives are, to a great extent, a quest for legitimacy. Did I do enough? Am I a good enough person? Have I accomplished enough? Is my position sufficiently high to make me worthwhile? How do other people see me? How do I see myself? Everybody has doubts about all of this, no matter who they are. Sometimes they are quite successful in repressing them, but they're there anyway. Because none of this can confirm us. Continuous practice confirms us. Not our good character or our good deeds. Because whose character couldn't be better? And whose deeds are sufficient? And certainly, our social position and our bank account don't make us who we are. So let's have good deeds. Let's be good people. It's not that we don't strive for that. But let's not kid ourselves that this is going to be what confirms us. And then he says, and, and I know he is not exaggerating one bit, then he says, if you understand what I'm saying here, you will know that your practice affects the entire earth and the entire sky in ten directions. Everything is changed in the cosmos because you do continuous practice. The question of whether practice is changing your life in a good way or not becomes a very small matter. There's no use even paying attention to it. What's the difference when you realize that everything is changed forever, everywhere, because you engage continuous practice. That's what Dogen is saying. And I think, for me, you know, nowadays, when we're living in, in a world which 
has so many overwhelming problems and every one of us is thinking what is going on here what could I do about it you feel so disempowered even if you're an, an activist how can you take seriously that you're changing the world in the best way that's where this teaching to me is so important now to be sure this doesn't cover up everything with a cloak. We, we are objective creatures living in an objective world. There are things that have to be done. There are things that we must do according to our talents, our inclinations, and our karmic position. We all have something to do and we need to do it. But I think we also need to know that our lives our practice, in other words, in and of itself matters in this cosmos and has an ultimate effect. We need to have faith in that if we're going to be able to go on without being utterly frustrated in these times. And even though we don't notice this effect, it's true, it's so. You know, we're so um, <laughs> self-centered in a way, you know, we want to know things, we want to experience things, we want to see results. If we're strong, we want to know we're strong, we want to feel our strength. If we're effective, we want to know we're effective. I mean, that's natural, because we're conscious human beings and we want what's good. But continuous practice and its effects are beyond all of this beyond what we could possibly know or measure. We're so mesmerized by measurement, you know. Everything must be measured. But this is not about measurement. Now, I think it's true that when we practice, we feel all of these things that I'm saying in some way. And maybe even once in a while, it happens to us that we have a tremendous, wide and beautiful moment of experience in which we really know all these things to be true. And that would be great. But that's not something that we're striving for or anything that even matters. Even if suddenly we would be able to directly feel the wholeness of the universe, the endlessness of time, and the immensity of ourselves, that would only be something that appears in consciousness. And that would be inspiring to us for a moment. <clears throat> and then it would be gone. So, I, uh, you know, I think actually all of us do have such moments from time to time. But mostly not, right? Mostly we're just plodding along, living our lives. But when you do continuous practice with your whole heart, even when you're just going along, you see that life as life is miraculous and it is always enough and sufficient. Which means Finally, you can relax and just live with some kindness. Now he goes on. Accordingly, by the continuous practice of all Buddhas and ancestors, your practice is actualized and your great road opens up. By your continuous practice, the continuous practice of all Buddhas is actualized and the great road of all Buddhas opens up. Your continuous practice creates the circle of the way. By this practice, Buddha ancestors abide as Buddha, don't abide as Buddha, have Buddha mind, and attain Buddha without cutting off. Remember, Dogen lived in the 13th century. He was a person who had deep faith in the Buddha, 
and all the Buddha ancestors from the Buddha up until his time through India, China, and then Japan. And he inherited this faith from his mother, who died when he was a child, and, and fervently wanted him to become a Buddhist priest, which he did when he was a boy. So Dogen revered the Buddha as a great sage, as a kind of mythical, archetypal person who was not bound by ordinary time and space. So here he's telling us from his position of faith that our continuous practice actually doesn't come from us and it actually isn't something that we are doing. It actually is arising in us by virtue of the Buddhas and ancestors who open up the great road of our lives. <clears throat> and then he says the opposite. Because, of course, it has to go both ways, right? Because the Buddha ancestors are not back there in some linear time frame. He says the continuous practice of the Buddhas and ancestors depends on us. And we open up the great road of their lives. And this is, of course, completely true. If there were no Buddhist practice in the world, the Buddha ancestors would be gone. Through our practice, we give life to the Buddhas and ancestors, just as their life, give life gives life to us. And, and Buddhas and ancestors here doesn't just mean the Asian figures we think of as Buddhas and ancestors. It means all our ancestors, our parents, grandparents, and beyond. It's thanks to them that we're here now. That we're alive in the way we are alive. They're in us, literally, right? And it's thanks to us that they remain alive in the way that they remain alive. Human beings have always been doing this for one another throughout time, opening up great roads to travel on, becoming Buddhas, not becoming Buddhas, turning the continuous wheel of practice. He goes on even more extravagantly. <clears throat> because of this practice, there are the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because of this practice, there are the great earth and the open sky. Because of this practice, there are body, mind, and the whole of it. Because of this practice, there are the four great elements and the five skandhas. <clears throat> Continuous practice is not necessarily something people in the world love. Not everybody likes spiritual practice. A lot of people hostile to it, right? He, he knows that. So it's not something people necessarily love, but it should be the true place of return for everyone. Because of the continuous practice of all Buddhas of the past, present, and future, all Buddhas of the past, present, and future are actualized. The effect of such sustained practice is not hidden. And that's why you aspire to practice. Yet also the effect is hidden, which is why you can't see it, hear it, or know it. Understand that it's just like this, hidden and not hidden, revealed and not revealed. So, continuous practice is hidden and not. <clears throat> if you practice formal Zen practice, there's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of ritual. We have uh, our zazen. We wear robes, a lot of complicated robes, incense, bowing, chanting, bells, drums, and, and also our everyday lives, which we also practice in the same spirit as ritual. And we have our shared commitment and our shared understanding. All of this stuff we can see. 
and we can feel and we can understand. And these things which are revealed cause us to aspire to practice and give us a path. A lot of people, you know, come to a Zen place and immediately feel turned off. Ich, you know, all that. I, got, I thought I got rid of that when I left the church, you know. <clears throat> but then other people uh, are inspired by it and think, ah, oh, you know, I don't know, what, I don't know what there is about this, but, uh, but I like it, you know, it's meaningful to me. So th these things give us a path. In the ordinary world of time, we can say, at this point I was not practicing, and then I began to practice, and maybe at the beginning, or maybe a little bit later, I really got it, you know, and I was really awakened in my aspiration. When you first start, you think you understand why, and you're, why you're doing it, and what you're doing. But after a while, the unrevealed aspects of practice sneak up on you. And you really do understand that something other than what you thought you were doing is what you're actually doing. And what is it exactly that you're actually doing? <clears throat> well, you don't know. But it's something, somehow. Or, you're also willing to say, maybe it's not something. Maybe it's nothing. That's okay. More words from Dogen. As it is not divided by what is hidden, apparent, existent, or non-existent, you may not notice the causal conditions that led you to be engaged in the practice that actualizes you at this very moment of unknowing. The reason you don't see it is that becoming conscious of it is not anything remarkable. So now he says what I just said. <clears throat> not only is continuous practice both hidden and revealed, but it both exists and does not. It's very hard to be <clears throat> imposing, you know, your viewpoint on someone <clears throat> when you understand that it's sort of true and also not, you know. It exists and it doesn't even exist. <laughs> this is why you probably can't see the causal conditions that brought you to practice and that even right now are opening you up even though you don't know it. And even if you do see it, and in a way, of course you're seeing it all the time, because this whole world, everything in it is constantly showing the absolute truth that you need to see. Just open your eyes and look at the first thing that's there. But even if you knew this, it would just look like the ordinary everyday world that's giving you so much trouble. You can't see that the world isn't just the world and you aren't just you. And yet, it's not a mystery. Just eat breakfast. Just wash your bowls. Just look at the sky. Just hear the birds singing. It's really that simple. Investigate this, Dogen says. Investigate this. But how about when you're not investigating it, when you forgot to investigate it, and you're just sort of crashing through your life, suffering a lot, and making a mess of things? What about then? Well, Dogen has something to say about that, too. He says, even if you might try to ignore it in order to hide a crooked intention and escape from it, this ignoring would also be continuous practice. To go off here and there looking for continuous practice appears similar to the aspiration for it, but it is like leaving behind the treasure at home of your true parent and wandering poor in another land. Wandering through wind and water at the risk of your life, you should not discard the treasure of your own parent. While you were searching in this way, the Dharma treasure would be missed. This being so, continuous practice should not slacken, even for a moment. So even when you ignore it, it's still there because you're still alive and you're still human. You know, people talk about spiritual, spiritual practice as, as something. 
But I always think, you know, well, if you're human and you were born and you're going to die and you kind of know you're going to die and you care about meaning and love, things like that, then you have a spiritual practice, whether you call it that or not. Everybody is doing continuous practice. And they're doing it with you. You have never met anyone, and you never will meet anyone, who is not practicing this practice with you. Because even the trees and grasses and tiles and pebbles are also doing continuous practice. And everything in your life has always been essential because everything has always been an endless and eternal element of your continuous practice. You don't have to go around here and there looking for it. Don't tell anybody I said this, but you don't need to find the great teachers. You don't even need to go to retreats. Maybe one <laughs> would be enough. But people think, I went to one, I better go to two. I always think, they think, oh, a month, one month retreat was good. A three month retreat would be three times as good. No, you don't have to run around as if continuous practice were somewhere else. It's not somewhere else. Because you're a human being, automatically you have what you need and you have what you really, really want. It's already there. Continuous practice is always occurring exactly where you are, not somewhere else. You don't need to look for it somewhere else. It's unbelievable thought, you know, that that which we think is missing, that which we think is elsewhere, is always here. What you really, really want is here, right where you are, not some other place. So what this means to me, practically speaking, is that what really counts is our aspiration to practice and our recognition that the reason why we're practicing is to go beyond ourselves so that we can naturally be in love with the world and all that's in the world, especially if we're humans other humans, and not only humans, but every living thing. So that's the thing, aspiration and, and faith. Not, not faith in the Buddha or, or faith in, in the teachings as if they're you know, the gospel truth, or, or faith in a person or an institution, but faith in the practice itself, faith in life itself. Faith that we're here for a reason and that our lives really are worthwhile and very good like it says in the Bible you know and this and this and this was created and God said ah that's very good since it's very good we must use our life to the best of our ability to serve and once we have this aspiration and this kind of faith, we just need to allow ourselves to be moved by them to continue to practice and see that our practice is not just what we do in meditation or on retreat. That's not practice. But what we do all the time, that and what we do all the time, every moment of our lives is practice. We don't need to be perfect. We don't even need to be very good at practice. It might even be a problem to be good at practice. We're better off, I think, not being too good at it. All we need to do is do it with humility and faith and join with others for support because we need the support and so that we can support them because we need to support them. And then doing continuous practice that way, we will have confidence that everything is going to be okay. So we make effort but it's very relaxed because we know there's not something wrong with us or something wrong with the world. Life is challenging, no doubt. It's hard. 
you get old and you know your friends start dying and everything I mean wow you know I'm in that stage of life now and it's hard but it is the challenge we need exactly the challenge we need for this life that's what this life is and we can meet that challenge so that's just the first few paragraphs of Dogen. The essay actually goes on for many, 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 many pages. But most of it actually is his uh, recounting of different examples from the past of different Zen people who have done continuous practice. And every single story is about someone who was really serious about their practice, very dedicated in practice without stint. So the, the, the message is we do have to be serious. We have to be committed. We have to spare no effort. And this doesn't mean we can't like goof off and have fun and go to the movies or whatever it is we do. That's also part of our practice. To, to be pious and, and doer isn't continuous practice, to go around looking like you know, a cleric or something. Because continuous practice is inherently a path of joy and liberation, thoroughgoing, wholehearted. My old uh, teacher, Sojin Weitzman, did continuous practice his whole life. His practice is simple, unambitious, unadorned. For more than 50 years, he sat at the Berkeley Zen Center and there was nothing special about it. And there was really nothing special about him. Sometimes uh, I would bring friends to hear him talk and they would be very unimpressed. <laughs> I often uh, tell the story of my meeting him for the first time, maybe 50 or 60 years ago. And I had moved to Berkeley from the Midwest and I looked up Zen in the Berkeley phone book. You remember those things, phone books? They had a book, there was a book in the olden days and it had nothing in it but names, a big fat book, you know, it had a lot of names and phone numbers and addresses. So you could go somewhere and look up Zen in the phone book, and that's what I did. And I found the Zen Center in Berkeley, which turned out to be an ordinary, modest Victorian house on an ordinary street. And Mel was in the front garden, I'll never forget, sweeping up leaves from on the one side the yucca tree and on the other side the monkey puzzle tree. Uh, maybe, Tinker, you were there. Maybe you went to that place yeah, on Dwight Way. And I asked him about the center and what was the schedule and who was the teacher because I was very interested in who was the teacher. And he said, well, there was no teacher there. There was just a priest. And I naturally figured, since he was raking the leaves, that he must be the gardener. He seemed like a very nice, quiet fellow. But then when I went to Zazen for the first time, I was really surprised to find out that the gardener was actually the priest of the temple. And that was his practice, to rake leaves, work in the garden, sit, eat breakfast, clean the dishes. Those were beautiful years when it was very quiet practicing there. Later on, things got busier with more people. But really, it didn't change. He just did what was in front of him uh, with care and with no fuss. What you need is right in front of you. There's never anything else necessary. And that was his teaching. And that was Suzuki Roshi's teaching. And that's the teaching of Soto Zen. That's continuous practice. Really simple. Despite the profound dimensions of it, it's really simple and concrete, and there's nothing special about it. Mel just died a few years ago during the pandemic at 92. He had cancer for the last couple of years, and he was very okay with it. He just continued his practice, decided not to have any big deal treatments, just gentle treatments so that he could continue the practice he had always done, going to Zazen, studying a little, playing Bach on his recorder, walking the dog, cooking lunch, making tea, talking with people when they came over. 
a few months before he died, there was an online ceremony, because there was still no getting together in person, an online ceremony of him stepping down as abbot of the center. And after he stepped down, he went to bed and died. And he was willing to die, because uh, it was time. And that was the next thing to be done. There's a famous saying in Zen, life and death is the great matter. That is the great road, life and death. Without death, you know, there's no life. And without life, there's no death. It's a wheel, continuous practice. Our great road, the great mystery. Once in a while, in the silence, you feel it very deeply. You know it. So thank you very much for listening to my possibly slightly too long talk on continuous practice. Here's what I would suggest that we do next. Let's uh, all do some walking meditation. We need to get up from our chairs. We've been sitting here a long time. Let's do walking meditation until uh, 1130 uh, California time. In other words, 15 minutes, 30 minutes after the hour. And, and uh, just very quickly, for those who are unused to walking meditation, of course, do, do the kind you're used to. But if you're not used to walking meditation, you can hold your hands like this. Uh, grab the thumb of your left hand, right hand on top, uh, and put this uh, around uh, so your arms are parallel to the floor uh, by the middle of your body. And then uh, in, in a space that's small or however large, you can take a, a half a step with each exhale. So be with your breathing, stand up straight, exhale, take a half a step, inhale, begin to move the back foot, exhale, take another half step. So uh, in that way or in whatever other way you like to practice, let's practice walking meditation. You probably need the bathroom or a drink too. And then at 1130, uh, we'll come back and uh, we'll have a discussion in small groups and then uh, all together and, and maybe there'll be time for sitting uh, to end. Okay, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciated your, your kindness to listen. I can see people on the screen and nobody was uh, scratching their head or looking fidgety or bored. So at least on, the, on this screen, maybe the other two screens where I couldn't see everybody, they were wondering what I was talking about, but thank you. Okay, so I'll see you in about 15 minutes and I'll turn off my screen.